What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 59 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, today is a podcast that I have personally looked forward to you listening into for a long time. Gosh, we recorded the podcast a few months ago, and I have been itching to get it released because... The gentleman who I get to sit down with here today is a uh, is a man who has not only made a mark, but is continuing to make a mark. Maybe you've heard of the book Five Love Languages. It is one of the only books ever written that has outsold what it sold last year every year. Unbelievable. And the reason is, is because it's so timely and so true for generations. It just doesn't get old. I remember reading the book for the first time, hearing about it, reading the book. It changed Ann and I's marriage. It took us from a good marriage to a great marriage. I have probably given out the book more than any other book I've ever given out. And it is a it is a special resource uh, for couples. But the gentleman behind the book is what fascinates me. Today, you get the honor and privilege, like I did a few months ago, of sitting down with Dr. Gary Chapman. Brilliant, funny, easy, enjoyable, and just absolutely a phenomenal, not only a phenomenal guest, you can tell he's a phenomenal person and is passionate today about what he does as he's ever been. So pull up a chair. Take out a notepad, pencil, thumb it into your phone in your notes, or type it in to your notes section. I want you to listen in to my time with Dr. Gary Chapman. Well, Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Well, thank you, Mike. It's good to be with you. Well, I, I told you before we went on, I'm a fan. I have been a I have been a fan. My wife and I went through the book in 1992, 1993. I was a student pastor at my first church, and we were two ships, fell in love at Liberty. And I think today we would be, we've been married 27 years. We'd have a good marriage, but I think when we stumbled onto the five love languages, it truly helped us have a great marriage. And on that, if I don't get anything else out of this interview, thank you. Thank you for writing that book because it truly helped us. Well, it's been very encouraging, Mike, to see the way God has used that book through the years. You know, it's been out now 26, 27 years, and every year it sells more than the year before. And it's now been translated into 50 languages around the world, most recently into Arabic in Saudi Arabia, which absolutely blows my mind. That is amazing. When you wrote it, because I know it came about, Dr. Chapman, from work you were doing with couples in your church, and you kept seeing these common things coming up. Did you have any idea that when you put it on paper and 
sort of quantified and put it out there that it would have the legs that it has? Uh, no, obviously I did not. Uh, I did know that the concept would help couples because I had been using it for several years in my counseling and with small groups. So I knew the message would help people, but I had no idea uh, that it would just, you know, I think the first year is so either 4,000 or 8,000. <laughs> that is crazy. That is, but it's so funny though, because I mean, generationally, gosh, it's been since 1992. So I had just begun in mills my second year in ministry full time. And here we are in 2019 and it for young couples resonates as much now as it did in 1992. Why do you think those things are so universal? Why, why do you look back at it and go, that, that just fits whatever generation it is? I think, Mike, because uh, our deepest emotional need on the human level is to feel loved by the significant people in our lives. And if you're married, that's your spouse. You know, if you feel loved by your spouse, everything else is much easier to, to handle. And so I think because it speaks to that deep need, whether it's a marriage or whether it's a parent-child relationship, our, our, our good friendship. When you feel loved and appreciated, uh, then all the rest of the things, the conflicts and the normal uh, things in life are much easier to uh, handle. And so I think it because it addresses that deep need is why it is just, it's perennial. It's going to apply to every culture because we're human. You know, you're, you're growing up and I knew that you felt called into ministry while you were in high school and you felt like God was going to use you. At that point in your journey, did, what was the way that you thought and saw that God was going to use you? Looking out the, the front windshield of, of life, how did you think all that was going to come about? Well, you know, uh, Mike, when I was in high school, I only knew there was two things you could do full time. One would be a pastor and one would be a missionary. That's all I knew growing up in a little town in North Carolina. And uh, I didn't like snakes, so I figured <laughs> I probably should be a pastor. <laughs> 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 Understood. Understood. But when I got to Moody Bible Institute and I went there at the age of 17, and I was exposed to the world and to missions. And by the time I left there, I really sensed that God wanted me to be a missionary. Hmm. So I went to Wheaton College and majored in anthropology, which is oh, a wow. great study if you're going to work in another culture. And so, you know, I, I really moved toward missions. Uh, talked to the mission board. Uh, my, my vision was to teach uh, in other countries and train nationals because to me, that's the way you really reach the country. And they said, well, you know, probably would be good if you had a PhD because you'd probably be teaching in a college or a seminary. So my wife and I went back to seminary a second time and did the PhD. And then we applied to the mission board and we got turned down. She was having a health problem. Mm. They said she, we were going to Africa, and she, they said she won't make it in Africa. So we were very disturbed, you know, kind of upset with the mission board, <laughs> upset with God. Why did you lead us, you know, these years this way? And uh, so at any rate, uh, now that things have turned out as they are, uh, you know, my books are in 50 languages around the world. I mean, numerous books. I was in Hungary this summer. They translated 32 of my books in Hungarian. Good. And so I was opening books one night uh, from another country and I looked up on the couch and my wife was crying and I said, honey, what's wrong? And she said, nothing's wrong. I just remember we wanted to be missionaries and now your books are all over the world. It was one of those moments where mm -hmm. you realize that God's plans are often different from your plans, 
and often much bigger <laughs> than your plans. Did you think when y'all got the denial that you had missed something? Was was that what was going through your mind as a young leader and a and somebody with a passion to take the gospel across the world? Did you think, well, maybe maybe I've missed something or maybe God's missed something? What was going through your mind back then? Well, my first response was the mission board made a mistake, you know. And then <laughs> and then to be honest, I had some anger toward God. Mm. Why why would you put this on my heart and then not gonna make it happen? And here's what really hurt me is my wife felt like she was the problem. And she said, you know, I'm keeping you from going to the mission field. And, and, that, and that hurt me deeply that, that, mm. I, that you know, that she, she sensed that. Uh, obviously, looking back on it, it's easy to see and understand, you know, God, God's plans. But at those times, it's hard when, you, when you've moved in one direction, you sense God leading you, and that door gets closed. It's hard to, it's hard to regroup and think, well, where do I go from here, you know? Uh, but obviously we did regroup and I did teach for three years here in this country in a small Bible college. And then I came to the church where I am now to start a college ministry. Wow. And I got to teach college kids for 10 years in a non-academic setting. Uh, we started the uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Wake Forest University with one group and went up to 25 groups in about three years. Every Friday night for 10 years, we had college students in our house. Uh, open door every Friday night, 20 to 60 college students. And then those kids eventually went all over everywhere, you know? So our ministry was multiplied through those college kids that we worked with those 10 years. And then we started singles ministry uh, for 10 years. Uh, you know, it, it's just, I never had it all mapped out after that. I just, I stopped mapping it out. <laughs> you, you learned that God said, let it go, buddy. You're in charge. I'm just home for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> what would you tell somebody? So if there's a, if there's a young pastor, a pastor listening in or a young leader listening in, they're like, Dr. Chapman, I, if I could get five minutes with you, I would love to map out my future. And I would love to, to know all that was to come. What advice would you give them? I would say best leave it up to God. You know, I, I've never had a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. Uh, when I came to the church where I am now, the pastor and I talked, he said, if you could get this college ministry started, because I was thinking, well, I probably should be a senior pastor. And he said, if you could get it started a couple of three years, that'd be worth it for us. And I've been here 47 years now. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. And I, I've told people, I guess I was just a slow planner. I just didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, when I first started, I pastored a church early on before we applied to the mission board. Because, you know, you, with missions, you have to have a couple of years experience here. And uh, used to keep records on all the weddings I did, all the funerals I did, and had it all in a little book. And 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 one day I misplaced the book and I never could find it. And it was like God said to me, why don't you let me keep the records? That's awesome. Just do the work and let me keep the records. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of been my attitude is, Lord, I'm here as long as you want me to be here. I'm available whenever you want me to do anything else. And, of course, you know, God has expanded my ministry far beyond our local church. And our people have been so good to allow me to be gone and do other things and give me time for writing and so forth. Uh, but I, I would just say, you know, move into the situation you're presently in as a leader. Give it everything you've got, trusting in God, not in your own ability. 
you know, early on, I learned John 15, five, without me, you can do nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in the dependence on God, you give all that you've got to him and, and pour yourself into what you're doing. If God wants you somewhere else, he has the ability to open the door and give you guidance in terms of where you ought to go. Uh, I, I know there are people that are planners and they want to plan it all out. And, and I'm not opposed to that if that's who you are. But you know, my, my plan has just been <laughs> to trust God to open the doors where he wanted me to go in. It, it sure works out easier that way because it's going to end up there either way. Right, either through strife or, or or through defeat, you're gonna you're gonna let go at some point. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so how here you are? You you are known for pouring into marriages, understanding relationships. How was it navigating your own marriage during those early years when you're trying to figure out calling and place and and you know you're wanting to climb the ladder and do all those things. How was it navigating your own marriage during that time? Well, you know, Mike, uh, Carol and I had real struggles in the early days of our marriage. Uh, we got married, and two weeks later, I enrolled in Southwestern Seminary. Wow. And, uh, you know, we had one hour with a pastor before we got married. Never read a book on marriage. I don't know if they had books back then. No. Uh, never read a book, never had any premarital counseling. Uh, you know, college graduate. Man, I can conquer the world. And we got into our marriage, and uh, everything my mother told me about her before we got married was true. <laughs> <laughs> and our differences emerged, and we argued with each other. And, uh, you know, I, I early, I mean, within six months of our marriage, I was thinking, you know, I, I think I made a mistake. This is not going to work. It's just, it's just, we're not, we're too different. And, uh, you know, the closer I got to graduation in that first uh, seminary stint, uh, the more miserable I became. Mm. And I finally just said to God, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I know to do, and it's not working. And I, I, there's no way I can get up and preach hope to people and be this miserable at home. And when I said to God, I don't know what to do, as soon as I said that, there came to my mind a visual image of Jesus on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples. And I just heard God say to me, that's the problem in your marriage. You do not have the attitude of Christ towards your wife. Mm. Hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, I remember what Jesus said when he stood up. After he washed their feet, he said, I am your leader. And in my kingdom, this is the way you lead. And I knew that was not my attitude. My attitude in the early years was something like, look, I know how to have a good marriage. If you'll listen to me, we'll have one. <laughs> I blamed her, you know. But that day I got a different message. Yeah. God changed my heart. It was the greatest prayer I ever prayed about mm-hmm. my marriage. And three questions, Mike, made this practical for me after God changed my heart and gave me a desire to serve her. Three questions. Number one, honey, what could I do to help you? Question number two, how can I make your life easier? And question number three, how could I be a better husband? And when I asked those questions, my wife was fully willing to give me answers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And looking back on it, I didn't know anything, obviously, about love languages back then. But looking back on it, her answers were teaching me how to love her. And here's what happened. Not overnight, but within three months, my wife started asking me those three questions. How can I help you? 
How can I make your life easier? How can I be a better wife? And so that's where our marriage really turned around. And we've been walking this way a long time now. And I have an incredible wife. In fact, I said to her recently, I said, you know, honey, if every woman in the world was like you, there'd never be a divorce. How about that? Why would a man leave a woman that's, that's doing everything right. she can to help him? And, you know, my goal has been to so serve her that when I'm gone, she'll never find another man to treat her the way I've treated her. The that's woman's going to miss me. <laughs> I love it. And I love it. Well, when, when our looks go and I can't do what I used to, I don't have any other options, right? I got I to do something. I remember I had a, a professor at Liberty, Dr. Lowry, Beverly Lowry, Mark Lowry, who traveled with the Gaither Vocal Band yep. for years. Dr. Lowry used to always say, my husband puts me on such a pedestal don't you dare come knock me off. That's what she said <laughs> in our marriage and family class all the time. And it's so true, though. And, and it's something that anyone can do if they'll take the time to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it has to, we have to have the attitude. You yeah. have to have a heart change because by nature, we're all self-centered. That's right. Our way is the right way. But if, you, if your heart changes and you have an attitude of love instead of an attitude of selfishness, then you're just looking for ways that you can love them, encourage them, and help them become the person God wants them to become. And, and that's what Jesus said about himself. You know, he said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. That's right. That's right. So when we follow that model, uh, we have in a marriage, we have the best possible marriage. You know, and I you, think the principle, Mike, applies also in other leadership roles. You absolutely. know, the pastor serves his people. I mean, we, we're servants. That's what the word minister means. And as a leader in, in any in any sphere, if you have the attitude, I'm here to enhance the lives of the people that work for me and with me, you got the right attitude and you're going right. to create a positive climate. You know, you are known for five love languages, which we'll get into here in a second, but you have written tons of other books. I mean, it's unbelievable. Is there a work that you've done or another book that you said was probably your favorite or you got the most out of outside love languages that you said, probably this was the one that has the most stuff in it that I felt like could help people. It just didn't get the accolades that five love languages. Were there any of those that stood out? Well, uh, one that my wife says is the best book I ever wrote. Uh, is called The Family You've Always Wanted. Mm. Uh, it, it shares the five fundamentals of a healthy family. What does a healthy family look like? And then it's filled with practical ideas wow. on how to implement or how to build this kind of family. Uh, and I think uh, one of the reasons she really likes it is my son, who grew up in our home, uh, wrote poems for each of those five things, depicting his own life and growing up with us. Uh, but, you know, uh, Mike, we have focused so much on the last 20 years or so on dysfunctional families yeah. that almost everyone that comes to my office says, I think I grew up in a dysfunctional family. <laughs> uh, and we're not going to turn things around by focusing on dysfunctional families. Right. we got to focus on functional families. What does a healthy family look like? How would you know if you had a healthy family and how do you get there? And so that book uh, in my, in my mind is, is really an important book. Uh, as you said, it hasn't had the exposure that the five love has, but it's a very, very practical book with a lot of ideas on how to build these five characteristics into, into your life and your family. You know, I, I was doing an interview with a gentleman out of Nashville. He's a recording artist in Nashville and his dad was a pastor 
And here he is. He's a country artist, sings super clean stuff. But he just said, I wanted to, I wanted to enter the marketplace and be a Christian in the market. Yep. And I said, okay, let me ask you a question. What did your dad do right? What? So here you are, a kid who grows up. You've still got the faith. You're still walking it. What did your dad do right? And the word was, it was interesting. You said what you said. He said, my, my parents lived a functional faith. Mm. What they did was so replicable. It was, my dad would have done that if he was an accountant. Yeah. And he get a, He said it marked me. He didn't do yeah. what he did because he was a pastor. He yeah. did what he did. And it, and he said it made it easy for me to go, oh, I can go doing music, music and still have a faith like that. Do you see a lot of families that go, if I just take my kids to church, then if I can get them in church a little bit and get them exposed to it, then they're all going to turn out okay. But I don't have to live a faith behind the scenes. Do you see that a lot? Yeah, I don't think parents would say that, Mike. Right. But in, in effect, that's what they do. Yeah. I feel like the, the church is the one that's going to give my children the spiritual footing. The reality is our model as parents is far more important than what the church is going to teach them or what you're going to teach them verbally. So, yes, you know, the primary responsibility for raising children is not the church. <laughs> primary responsibility is the parent. And so exposing our children to biblical truth, you know, starting out when they're very young and reading Bible stories to them and all those things and having prayer with them every night and giving them a chance to talk around the table when you're eating, what's going on in their lives, how they're feeling and how they're processing things and that communication and all of that. And then when we fail as parents, because listen, none of us are perfect. That's right. But when we do lose our temper, for example, and maybe speak a little harshly to our spouse or even to a child uh, yelling at them, screaming at them, we need to apologize. Mm. And when we apologize to our spouse and apologize to our children, we're being authentic we're acknowledging we're not perfect. And what I just did was not what should be done. And when your kids learn that, they're going to need to learn how to apologize. And when they see you apologizing, you're building a real building block into their lives so that they learn how to apologize because they're not going to be perfect either. That's right. And you don't have to be perfect to have a long-term healthy relationship, but you do have to deal with your failures effectively. And so I think uh, parents have to come back and recognize, you know, what we teach in the home and then what we practice in the home is going to have the greatest impact on our children. You know, you and I talked about a little bit before we get started here. We, so our market in this is, is people that are leaders in their industries. Our goal is that they become spiritual leaders, that they use that influence that of the place they've been put for a reason bigger than them. Why is what goes on in the marriage and the home so vital for a leader that's out in the marketplace, they're leading a school or leading a company or leading a university or leading a team. And they go, well, my, my marriage and my home separate. That's not, that didn't have anything to do with my leadership. What would you say to that? Well, I think that uh, our marriage relationship, our family relationships have a tremendous impact on our leadership in the public uh, place. Uh, granted, you can separate them in your mind for sure. And uh, you can be in a very difficult marriage and all of that and still be a leader. But you got a place to come home. You know that you're loved. They know that they're loved. You're there to serve each other. Your children have that kind of relationship with you. You're going to be much freer at work 
to, to use the talents and the abilities God has given you to bless the people that work with you and for you. So I think it has a tremendous impact. And that's why I say to leaders in any sphere of leadership, you know, make your marriage priority, if you're married, make your marriage priority, make your family priority, and then let it spill over into your leadership outside the home. And I think that's true of a pastor as well. And sometimes as pastors, we can spend so much time ministering to other people that we lose out on ministering to our own family and our own kids. So if we make it a priority, again, we're modeling for our church family what a healthy family and a healthy marriage looks like. And again, our model is going to be more important than what we preach. So uh, more impactful, I should say, not more important, but more impactful on the people. That's good. So here we have the five love languages. I'd love to talk through these real quick because everybody, everybody has a primary and a secondary, correct? Right. And why? So first, why is it so important that someone knows their love language, not just their spouses, but they they're self-aware and they know who they are and how they're hardwired. Why is that important? They understand theirs as well as their spouses. I think because it helps you understand how you emotionally process life. For example, if you know that words of affirmation is your language, then you understand why you get so hurt when somebody gives you a negative word. It's like a dagger in your heart. Whereas somebody else could just let those words just roll off, you know, but not not you. And now you understand why you were hurt so much by that. Or uh, if uh, quality time is your language and uh, your spouse is so busy, they don't have time to spend any time with you. Now you know why that hurts you so deeply. So it gives you a lot of self-understanding if you know your own love language. And then you have to know your own love language before you can communicate it (laughs) to your spouse or your children. Uh, And so I think understanding what makes you feel loved and appreciated uh, is important for you so that you can in turn communicate that to the significant people in your life. You know, and, and I know even in the each love language, there's the, you say there's dialects, there's dialects in there that make them, you know, where my wife has quality time, her quality time may look different than somebody else's quality time. Right. Yeah. And I think we have to understand that. Uh, I remember a wife said to me recently, she said, my husband, and I have the same love language. I said, oh, wonderful. Because that doesn't happen very often. I said, what is it? She said, acts of service. She said, but. The things that I want him to do for me that make me feel loved are different from the things he wants me to do for him. That's right. Same language is just different dialects. And in understanding that uh, will help you be more effective in communicating love. Well, that was so funny. That was the breakthrough for my wife and I, because here I am, early student ministry, where you work, you, you work all the time. And I remember coming home all excited about a Valentine's party I was going to do for the student ministry. And I, I was told her the that stupid Cupid party. It's going to be amazing. I was telling her all about it. And I remember her, her comment was, you love those kids more than you love me. Wow. And yeah. I said, I don't like those kids. I really don't. I don't know where, where that came from. And, and she said, but you're always there. Mm-hmm. The problem was we didn't have a language to, to figure out what that meant. Yeah. And so we went through shortly thereafter, a pastor came through and we did a marriage workshop at our church and he taught the five, Ike Riker, my pastor growing up, came out and taught the five love languages. And we sat there and went, that's it. 
That's why I'm, I'm words of affirmation and she's quiet and yeah. she is quality time and I'm busy. And yeah. that is not a great recipe for a great marriage. So as we have, as we've grown into it, we've both grown over time. Do you ever grow out of that love language or is it something that may ebb a little bit just as the longer you're married? Yeah, Mike, I think uh, the love language, the primary love language, tends to stay with us for a lifetime, like many other personality traits. Having said that, however, I think there are maybe seasons of life or circumstances where another love language may become more important for a while. For example, if a mother has two or three preschool children, acts of service may not be her primary love language, but I can tell you during those years, it's probably going to flip. And acts of service is going to be really, really helpful to her. You really communicate love to her. Or maybe there's a crisis. Maybe, for example, your spouse gets word that some family member has died. Physical touch may not be their language. But at that moment, you hug them, let them cry on your shoulder. That's probably the most important thing you could do at that moment. So I think there may be situations where another love language pops to the top. And another uh, situation is if your number one and your number two are very, very close, you get enough of number one, you may begin to think, oh, I don't know. I think I think number two has become number one. But if they take away number one, you'll quickly know, oh, no, 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 that's still number one. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's so funny. But, you know, we've been married 27 years now. And I think I've probably gotten quieter through the years than I was early on. I'm still loud. But then I was early on. I know my uh, my wife for her 25th anniversary, I said, what do you want your gift to be? We went away. And she said, don't talk to anybody but me for a week. And that was that was asking a lot, Doctor Chapman. That was I, I think we need to I think we need to reread the book because I don't think that's in there anywhere. I think she, she's pushing the envelope. Out of out of the five love languages, which is the hardest one to recognize? Is there recognize. a hard, yes, sir? Is there a harder one than others, or maybe I should say it this way: Is there a harder one than others to try to meet? So is is gifts harder to meet than somebody with quality time, or are they pretty equal in that? Yeah, I think it depends, Mike, on your own love language. Uh, your number five, the one that's least important to you, if that turns out to be number one for your spouse, you're going to have a high learning curve. You're going to have to push yourself. Like if, if, let's say, gifts is number five on your list, it's number one on their list, and you're not a gift giver, you don't know how to choose gifts, you're going to have to learn how to do it. You know, you're going to have to talk to her sister and get ideas. Mm. You're going to have to ask her to make you a list and you're going to have to listen to her when she says, you know, I'd like to have one of those someday. Um, it's going to take more effort. Uh, if, if it's not your number five, uh, if, if it's closer, you know, if you, if you happen to have a language that's much easier for you, because let's face it, any of these five are going to communicate love on some level. And I think, uh, if, for example, uh, physical touch is hard for you. I remember a, a father who said to me, I read your book on children, the five love languages of children. And I realized that my son's love language is physical touch. He said, Dr. Chapman, my father never hugged me. Mm. And I don't remember ever hugging my son. And he's eight years old. And he said, I don't know how to do it. I, I can't imagine walking up to him and hugging him. And I said, well, stand up and hit me on the shoulder. He hit me on the shoulder. I said, that's your assignment this week. Go home and at least once walk up to your son, hit him on the shoulder, and then you can run if you want to. You know, I said next week he came back. I said, now pat me on the back. 
I said, no, you add that this week. Hit, hit him on the shoulder and pat him on the back. And we just walked him up to the place where the day he hugged his son, he came in crying. He said, Dr. Jam, I hugged him. I hugged him. I hugged him. <laughs> mm. Any one of these can be learned. Even if you didn't have them as a child, you can learn them as an adult. But yes, it will take conscious effort to learn another love language. You know, I, it, that's so generational too. You know, so many from that generation before their parents weren't, you know, maybe their dad wasn't affectionate yeah. and they weren't. Is there an excuse that there's a love language we can't do? Have you ever had a couple sit there and a, and a man go, I, I just can't like a situation like the dad. I yeah. can't do that for my spouse. Is that ever really true if they try? I don't think can't. I think I think they can. Now, I've met people who decided not to. I had a yeah. man say to me, so my wife and I read your book. We took the quiz. And she tells me that her love language is acts of service. He said, well, I'll tell you and her, if it's going to take my washing dishes and my vacuuming floors for her to feel loved, she can forget that. Unbelievable. And I said to him, that's your choice. Love is a choice. That's right. I said, if you want to live with a wife who has an empty love tank, that's your choice. I said, I much prefer to live with a wife who has a full love tank. I said, my wife's love language is acts of service. Mm. I vacuum floors. I wash dishes. I take out the trash. I have a happy woman. I much prefer living with a happy woman. <laughs> to me, give me the vacuum cleaner if that's, that's what right. it takes. So uh, I do think we have to recognize love is a choice. And if I know my spouse's love language and I choose not to speak it, then I'm choosing to live with a, a wife or a husband who has an empty love tank. And people with an empty love tank are far more likely right. to do negative things with their lives than those who feel loved by their spouse. Explain to everybody the love tank. And I love that. I, this is such a great visual for couples though. Yeah. I just did premarital actually with a couple yesterday and we went through the five love languages. They had taken it in our premarital course and we were going through what theirs were and they were filling in and all that. Explain to everybody the concept of the love tank. Cause I think this is both in marriage. It's with our children. It's in our offices. It's on our teams for coaches. The kids all have love tanks. Tell everybody a little bit about that. Well, you know, you know with, if, a, if a car, all cars, well, not all cars now, but cars typically have gasoline tanks. If the tank is full, you can drive a long ways. If the tank is near empty, you're not going very far. So I, I take that picture and say inside every child, there's an emotional love tank. Mm. And if the love tank is full, that is they genuinely feel loved by the parents. The child grows up emotionally healthy. If the love tank is empty and they feel like my parents don't love me, that child will grow up with many internal struggles and in the teenage years will actually go looking for love, typically in all the wrong places. But I believe that adults also have an emotional love tank. And if you're married, the person you would most like to love you is your spouse. So you keep the love tank full and life is going to be much easier to process. You let the love tank get empty. And everything else is going to be more difficult. The conflicts will be more difficult and everything else. Meeting the deep emotional need for love is one of the most fundamental things in having a healthy relationship, whether it is marriage or parent-child or in a work relationship. You know, uh, Mike, we did take the love languages to work. And I wrote the book called The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace. Here's what we found out. I say we because I wrote this with a co-author, Dr. Paul White a Christian psychologist who had 20 years experience in business. 
we found that 70% of the people in this country say they feel little to no appreciation coming from the people with whom and for whom they work. 64% of the people who leave a job and go to another job say they left primarily because they didn't feel appreciated where they were. Wow. That is huge. And so that book is trying to help people learn what we call the appreciation language in the workplace, not love, but appreciation. It's the same emotional need that people value me as a person. And where we've seen that take place, and we've had tremendous response to it, it changes the emotional climate of the workplace when those who work closely together know each other's appreciation language and they speak it to each other. Man, it creates a positive climate in the workplace. You know, and, and when somebody's living on that full tank, they have more energy, they have more joy, they have more. And every time you're giving them what they need, you're making that deposit. And every time we don't, correct, we're making that withdrawal. Yeah, they're, they're going to they're gonna give you more of their capabilities if they feel appreciated in the workplace. Uh, and, and you're not going to get the best out of them if they don't feel appreciated. You know, I, I gave a lecture to a, a publishing company once, the employees, on this topic, how this works in the workplace. And a man came up to me after. He stayed till everyone was gone. He came up and he said, uh, Doc Chapman, uh, I've worked here for 20 years. And I've shared some creative ideas that have made this company millions of dollars. But in 20 years, no one has ever looked me in the eye and told me they appreciated what I did. Wow. And he had tears in his eyes. And, and tears came to my eyes. Can you remember? I imagine 20 years and no one. Now, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing people had said to him along the way, we appreciate what you're doing. You know, he said, they've never looked me in the eyes. Mm. Quality time was That's his right. And words was his secondary. Nobody ever looked me in the eyes and told me how much they appreciated that. You know, I was walking by a playground here at our church uh, some years ago. And our children's director, who happened to be a young man, was standing by the playground observing children. And I stopped and I said, you know, I don't know if I've told you this lately, but I want you to know how much I appreciate what you do. I said, you know, the minister to children is one of the most significant ministries in the church. And I've observed you. You do a wonderful job with children and you do a wonderful job with your leaders. And I just want you to know I appreciate that. Mm. The next week, I got a handwritten letter from him thanking me for my words of appreciation to him. He said, Dr. Chapman, can't remember when a staff member told me that. Wow. So in the church, where we have staff members, yep. <laughs> our staff members feeling appreciated is going to make a difference. And our lay people, you know, what we found is that 50% of the adults in this country volunteer for something every year in the church or out of the church. But the reason they volunteer and the reason they stay in their volunteer position are very different. They volunteer because they want to make a difference in the world. But they stay in that volunteer position because they feel appreciated by those with whom and for whom they're working. Mm -hmm. So think of the implications of that in all the volunteers in our churches, because the church operates with volunteers. If they feel appreciated, they're going to be there for the long haul. They don't feel appreciated. They're going to resign and they're going to go some other volunteer position. 
And that happens also in, in other organizations outside the church. And I was just reading in a spiritual leadership book. I was going through with a group of guys from Blackaby this morning. And, and it was, uh, I think it was Oswald Sanders said, if we treated everybody in our organization like volunteers and love them that way, even if they're full-time employees, it would change how, because they all are volunteers because they can voluntarily go somewhere else yeah. if the culture's not right or the, the system isn't right. And the, the high five attaboy patch on the back is great for some people, but there's other people that need more because their love tank's different. Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing when you think of it that way. Yeah. You know, when we were doing the research for that book, uh, The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace, uh, most of the managers we talk with would say, oh, I appreciate my people. Oh, yeah, I tell them. I tell them I appreciate them. And we That's would right. say, you're hitting about 40% of your people That's with so the good. words. That's good. Uh, you're sincere. You do appreciate them. But you're missing 60% of your people that words are, they don't mean that much to them. So just like you have to individualize love, you have to individualize appreciation in the workplace. Otherwise, you're hitting part of your people, but you're not hitting all your people. Have y'all ever integrated the love languages with the DISC, the DISC personality you know, profile? Have, have those ever correlated before? We, we have not. I've had some graduate students who have asked me if they could do that, and I said, fine, and when you get it all done, let me know. <laughs> but they never have let me know. I'm assuming they didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> but I think there may be some correlation, but yeah. I, I've never tried to do it. Yeah, It's, it's interesting. I, 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 so I'm a DISC trainer just for fun on the side. And, and you see how those can mesh together, but they're not. It's not perfected, and I'm in by no means would ever want to have to do data on it. I yeah. would rather make a conjecture and move on. <laughs> I was always curious because of how closely those things walk together. And you also have a book, and I want to ask you about this, about the way that God speaks to us yeah. through our love languages. Talk about that a little bit. That's fascinating to me. Well, it's a fascinating study. People kept asking me, uh, what is God's love language? Mm. So I just started going through the Bible, looking for the ways God loved. He speaks all five of them, Old Testament, New Testament, just full of God's love in all five languages. And But here's what, here's what that book deals with. First of all, I deal with conversion experiences, how people come to Christ. Mm. And, and my, my theory is that often people come to Christ because they feel his love through their love language. Uh, for example, Saul on the road to Damascus had a physical experience. My guess is his love language was physical touch. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, Jacob in the Old Testament had a ex physical experience with God. And that you hear people today say, I was sitting in church. I was just minding my own business. And all of a sudden, my body started shaking and mm. tears started coming down my eyes. God touched me. Mm. But not everybody has that kind of experience. Quality time people tend to come to Christ over a period of time. They start reading the Bible. They read Christian books. And one morning in a quiet place, they say, Lord, I believe, I believe. So uh, I think this can help us understand each other better and not feel like, well, I didn't have that kind of experience. We don't all have the same kind of experience when we come to Christ. And then here's the other thing I deal with in the book. Once we become believers, we naturally express our love to God in our love language. So if acts of service is our love language, we're the first one to volunteer to work in the soup kitchen. We volunteer to do anything because in our minds, that's expressing love to God. The words person will pour out words to God, thanksgiving and praise to God. Martin Luther, for example, you know, how did he come to Christ? 
And we had that little phrase in Romans, the just shall live by faith. And the word, he said it was like paradise broke in my soul. Wow. What did he do with his life? He poured out words. He wrote yeah. commentaries. He wrote hymns. He wrote sermons. He wrote the 95 theses. He poured out words to God. Uh, so, uh, if we again, if we recognize this, we we understand each other better. And why some people, like acts of service, people will sometimes say, "Well, you know, all you ever do is just talk. If you love God, get out there and do something." Yep, <laughs> you're exactly right. I've never thought about it that way. That is so good. The third part of that book is we're creatures of habit. And let's say that acts of service is your language. And ten years ago, you started working in the soup kitchen. And every time you dip beans, you looked up and you saw Jesus because you remember what Jesus said. You do it to the least of these, you do it to me. Ten years ago, but now you still go down there on Thursday night. You still dip beans, but you're not thinking about Jesus. It's just what you do on Thursday night. Mm. It's become routine. God never intended it to be routine. So I say, learn some different dialects of your own language. Learn some other ways to serve act, serve people in Jesus' name. And then try some of the other languages. Maybe you're not a physical touch person, but walk through the hallway at lunch in some rest home. And the people sitting out there in the wheelchairs that say, uh, 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 just lean over and give them a pat on the back or a little hug. Mm. They will melt in your arms. Mm. And you're learning how to speak another love language that's not really too comfortable for you. And it keeps it alive and vibrant. So it's a book on, you know, our relationship with God, how he loves us, how we love him by loving other people. A fascinating study. I really enjoyed working on that book. That's so good. I, the year 2014, we had gone through a real crisis in our church in 2012. And, and I remember I, I started a process in 2013 with the Blackaby Group to do spiritual leadership coaching. And so it was just something I wanted to do and, and learn more about and, and understand more. And so we had to do a we had to do a um, basically a graph of every time we remembered in our lives, God speaking to us. I mean, going back to childhood and coming to know Christ at 14 and knowing that I was called in ministry and going to Liberty and just all the, the stuff. And I'm tracking, well, I got to 2012 when we hit our crisis and now it was 2013, 2014. And I didn't have anything. And I just put the dry years and that's just all I put on there. And I was preaching every week, which is alarming, but I knew God was speaking. He just wasn't speaking to me. And I, I was going through a coaching time with our coach, uh, got named Brett Pyle with Blackaby. And we we're on the phone at 6 a.m. call one morning. And he doesn't he know me from Adam and he doesn't know our story. And so he said, Mike, walk me through these. You know, I, I see this consistent where you hear God's voice through other people and all that stuff. But I see the quiet ears. And so I shared with him the story. And he said, do you feel like God's speaking? And I said, Brett, I know he's speaking. I just don't, I don't sense it. I'm just dry. I'm empty. And Brett said something I'll never forget, Dr. Chapman. And it plays into you. He said, Mike, I'm going to go out on a limb. He said, do you, are you familiar with love languages? And I said, I've probably used that book with hundreds of couples. Very familiar. He said, what's your love language? And I said, words of affirmation. That's my love language. And he said, did you get a lot of notes during this season? And I said, well, yeah, I got lots of emails and notes. He said, I want you to pull one out and read it to me. So I pulled it out and I read it to him. He said, I want you to read me another one. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, Mike, did you ever dream that maybe God so wanted to speak to you during that season? He just used other people 
And everything they were saying to you to encourage you were really words from him, not them. Mm, mm. And it was the, it may be outside salvation, Mm. the greatest breakthrough I've ever had in my life to go. God was speaking to me through my love language the whole time. Yeah. I just wasn't smart enough to get it until somebody opened my, and that's why when I saw the title and I have not read that book, but I'm going to go buy it. When I saw the title of that book and that's what made me think of that story because God knows us better than anybody. So why wouldn't he speak to us better than anybody? Absolutely. Absolutely. So good. So (laughs) when you look at couples now, you've been working with couples for 47 years in some capacity. How have relationships changed through the years? Is it totally different now than it was when you began? Or are you still seeing the same common things coming up? Mike, I think the fundamental issues are still basically the same. But there's different dynamics now. The whole uh, world of technology has a, either a positive or a negative impact now on marriages. And often it's a negative impact. Uh, you know, many positive things about it. You know, I can text my wife when I know she's busy doing something else and I'm out of town. I can text her and know she's going to read it as soon as she can. I can make pictures and send to my grandchildren if I'm somewhere or something I think they're interesting. A lot of positive things about technology. But technology can take you away from more important things. You know, you, you get to where you spend an hour, an hour a day on Facebook, just seeing everybody else dressed up nice and things happening in their lives and not much going on in your life. You can get depressed, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think technology can either pull a family together and pull a marriage together, or it can pull them apart. Uh, I wrote a book uh, called Growing Up Social, Raising Relational Kids in a Screen-Driven World in which we talk about how do you control technology with your marriage and your children and not let technology control you. That's good. Let's make the most of it. Let's let's do the good part, but let's let's eliminate the negative part of technology that pulls us away or pulls us off into our individual little cubes. You know, Uh, for example, a teenager who spends all of his free time playing video games will be doing the same thing when he's 23. That's right. And he will not fare well with his marriage and his family. So we, we've got we've to keep our kids. We've got to have some boundaries for our children in technology, just like we have boundaries in other areas. Children respond to boundaries. You know, this is the time we watch television. We have two programs. Which one do you want to watch? You give them some choices. And this is when we can play a video game. But we have boundaries, and and we do different things at different times. Children thrive on that. You just let them do what they want to do. And every time they have a free moment, they pick up their phone or their iPad, and they go play a game. You're teaching them how to waste their lives. It's far more important things to be doing than playing video games. And I'm not opposed to video games if if they're done, you know, in increments and not passing us. If you could pull up a chair with every leader, so we're going to have a pretty good amount of folks that listen into this, and you were able to pull up a chair based on your years of walking with the Lord, your years of working with couples, your years of pouring into leaders and writing books and and uh, man, you've got it. You've you've accomplished a ton. If you were to pull up a chair and tell someone anything, what would you tell them? If I were speaking to a leader, I would say, first of all, guard your personal time with God. 
I don't care when you do it. If you're not a morning person, you can do it at night. <laughs> I happen to be a morning person. Carve out a time every day when you sit down with God and you listen and you talk to God. I know you can talk to God all the day long on the run, and that's fine. You should. But there needs to be a sit down, sit down time with God, a sit down conversation with God. Read a chapter in the Bible. Let God know I'm listening to you. Anything you want to say to me, I'm listening. Underline things that jump out at you. Go back and talk to God about them. Ask him questions or confess sin or ask him for his power to do that. A conversation with God. It's two way. You're listening to God. Then you're talking to God. Guard that above everything else because your relationship with God is going to affect everything else you do with your marriage, with your children, in your workplace. So make time for God on a regular basis. And I don't mean feel guilty if you happen to miss a day because there was something that turned up and you didn't get to have that time. I don't mean that. I don't mean legalism. Yeah. I just mean learn the joy of sitting down with God every day and listening and talking to God. It'll impact everything else. I think the second would be, if you're married, give priority to your marriage and to your family. It will be a positive impact on everything else you do. And if you don't, it'll be a drag on everything else you do. So many nuggets, weren't there? My goodness. And what I love about it, I think in his own marriage, he's more in love than ever. I think that he is more passionate than ever, ever to help couples be all that they were created to be. The, his mind to continue to to put out resources. And what I didn't know when we started the interview is how many books. Of course, I knew a few of the books he had done, but how many other books I've heard referenced and followed up with, and they're just gold. If you're a parent, you need to know the love language of your child. I'll tell you that. That is one of the greatest gifts um, that Gary left with that book is knowing the love languages of your children because you can't parent the same. You can't you can't do it like you did with one. You can't do with the other. You think you got it licked, licked, and then you find out your other child has completely different needs. If you're a coach, you can't coach the same way. Every child has a different tank, and you've got to figure that out. Dr. Chapman has left a playbook that I believe will be used for years and years to come. It'll get revamped. It'll get redone. But the context and the content are perfect. Thank you, Dr. Chapman, for not only an incredible resource and hundreds of other resources that you put out through the years, but thank you for the heart behind those. Well, in our next podcast, we stay in the leadership vein and, and sit down with a gentleman that I, I knew from Twitter He's known as the leadership freak, Dan Rockwell. I probably retweet Dan Rockwell more than anybody else. His thoughts, his statements, his, his one-liners, his leadership principles, his vacuum that um, just sweeps up good content then puts it back out. It's unbelievable. You are going to love getting to know the man behind the title, leadership freak. Well, once again, if you enjoyed today, leave a rating, a review. They do really, really do help us. Share this episode. A lot of your options in Apple Podcasts and even in Stitcher sometimes give you an option to share it. Share this episode with a friend if it added value to you. And until next time, keep being the leader that you were created to be so you can make the difference God called you to make. 
Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com. 